This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, Part 5. Morning in America. After the disgrace of Richard Nixon, the retirement of perennial primary runner Nelson Rockefeller, and the defeat of Gerald Ford, it seemed like 1980 just might be conservative darling Ronald Reagan's time to shine. The former governor of California had run four years earlier and lost narrowly to Ford in the primary. He had become a favorite among conservatives for his policies as governor, especially his crackdown on college campus protests, his anti-abortion views, his pro-death penalty crusade, and his stated desire to send the welfare bums back to work. True, he signed restrictions on gun ownership into law, a big no-no for conservatives even then, but that was easily swept under the rug because he was targeting, well, those people, the bad ones. Apparently, the Second Amendment didn't apply to the Black Panthers. He ran on the silent majority rhetorical platform, which might have been a bit risky given that it was one of Nixon's claims to fame, but the phrase has since been picked up by the likes of Rudy Giuliani, Michael Bloomberg, David Cameron, and even Donald Trump. So who is this silent majority? It's easier to answer who isn't the silent majority. The rabble-rousers, anti-Vietnam protesters, women's rights activists, black activists, gay activists, anybody who made a stink about injustice. The silent majority is supposedly a passive constituency. They don't make their voice heard in the public forum, but, hopefully, they will make it heard in the voting booth. And Reagan's silent majority was a whopper. He won the Electoral College with 44 states and 489 votes to Carter's mere 49. Reagan came into office with a clear mandate. Reagan's election might be the first time we see the full potential of the religious right to shape American politics. Schlafly and other conservative grassroots activists played a huge role in building a coalition of religious groups as diverse as evangelicals, Catholics, Mormons, and conservative Jews, which was basically unprecedented. These were not interest groups who often got along. But it was a natural progression from the ERA battle. Traditional family values were under assault from feminists and government overreach. The fight over prayer in schools and public displays of the Ten Commandments helped rile up conservatives. So-called activist judges were seizing powers given to the legislative branch, a theme we continue to see in right-wing discourse today. These issues could be welded together to bring in a new constituency for conservatives to fight not only the Democrats, but also the moderate flank of their own party. The full force of this new alliance was brought to bear in the 1978 midterm elections, when Democrats lost what had once been a core constituency, white evangelical voters in both the North and the South. While Carter had taken small towns and rural areas in 1976, conservatives managed to capture them in 78. Democrats only lost a few congressional seats, but it was an omen for what was to come and what right-wing coalition building could accomplish. At the 1980 RNC, Stop ERA and pro-life activists pummeled the liberal wing of the party, and for the first time since 1940, the platform did not endorse the ERA. Finally, and a huge win for Phyllis. 
Reagan advocated for a constitutional amendment to prohibit all abortion except when the life of the mother was at stake. The party plank on family values read, Unlike the Democrats, we do not advocate new federal bureaucracies with ominous power to shape a national family order. Rather, we insist that all domestic policies, from child care and schooling to Social Security and the tax code, be formulated with the family in mind. While moderates fought against these new ultra-conservative party planks, it was hopeless. The platform committee approved the new messaging by a vote of 90 to 9. The general election pivoted to economic and foreign policy, but managed to knit together military, economic, and social issues into a populist attack against out-of-touch elites. Reagan swept the Electoral College, and while the Democrats held the House, Republicans gained control of the Senate for the first time since 1955. Joyce Miller, president of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, called the election a total disaster for women's rights. Senator George McGovern, who had lost his seat in the election, proclaimed, People were reluctant to come right out and admit they wanted to put women in their place, but there was a strong current of that running through much of what happened. And yet, according to polling from Cornell University at the time, women split pretty evenly between Carter and Reagan, 46 to 47 percent respectively. And in 1984, the difference was even bigger. Reagan won 58% of the women's vote to Mondale's 42. A New York Times-CBS poll just before the election showed that more men, 55%, supported the ERA than women, 47%. All of this is to say, if anyone wanted to put women in their place, it was women. About half of them, anyway. By 1980, Stop ERA, which by now had been rebranded to the infamous Eagle Forum, was no longer just about one legal issue. It had morphed into a pro-religion, anti-government movement. When Reagan called Schlafly just before the March primary election in Illinois, asking her to help him beat third-party challenger John Anderson, she immediately mobilized her massive grassroots network of activists who worked around the clock for five days to hand Reagan the state. And yet, once again, Schlafly got the shaft. Goldwater, then Nixon, and now Reagan seemed eager to use Phyllis's resources and sway within the party, but when it came to giving her any real power or recognition, they kept her on the outside. In his book, Phyllis Schlafly and Grassroots Conservatism, Donald Critchlow speculates that perhaps party leaders feared that Schlafly might try to drive the money changers and compromisers out of the temple. On Election Day in 1980, Schlafly's friend Joseph Coors, that Coors, the beer tycoon who, if you didn't know, founded the Heritage Foundation, let's do a series on them in the future, sent a letter to the Reagan-Bush transition team before the results were even in. Supposedly, at the behest of Schlafly, he urged them to place her in an important spot in the Reagan government. J. Van Andel, the co-founder of multi-level marketing scheme Amway, wrote to the new administration, I highly recommend that Phyllis Schlafly be considered for either the position of Secretary of Education or Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. The letter-writing campaign kept up into the early days of the Reagan administration, but as appointments rolled out and Schlafly was snubbed, she gave up the fight. For a little while. Months later, when Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart retired, she organized another campaign to get herself appointed to the seat. 
but Reagan chose Sandra Day O'Connor instead, which alarmed Schlafly. She held a large rally in Dallas, Texas, where she proclaimed O'Connor out of step with the pro-family, pro-life policies on which the president was elected. In Reagan's second term, Coors again wrote to him suggesting she be appointed to chair of the Commission on the Bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution. Instead, they appointed her as a member of the commission, an innocuous position from which she couldn't do much harm, or much of anything, really. But as we know, Phyllis was not one to be deterred by this kind of setback. With ERA defeated and the Soviet Union in decline, Schlafly needed a new crusade, and once again it was an unlikely one. Phyllis shocked conservatives when she mobilized opposition to a constitutional convention that would introduce a balanced budget amendment. Joint Resolution 58 would require federal budgets to spend no more than what they took in. It failed in the House in 1982, but supporters decided to seek a constitutional convention, dubbed the CONCON, where states could vote directly on the amendment. Conservatives were heavily in favor of the new law, but Schlafly had concerns that a convention would open up the Constitution to massive changes, including a possible amendment guaranteeing the right to an abortion and the repeal of the Second Amendment. Can the CONCON read posters with canned soup logos. Phyllis used many of the same tactics she'd developed during the ERA fight. Her network targeted the four states that had yet to vote on the CONCON. New Jersey, Kentucky, Michigan, and Montana. She testified before state legislatures in all four states, proclaiming, Even assuming that a balanced budget amendment is a good end, it does not justify plunging our nation into the constitutional chaos, confusion, and controversy of an unprecedented constitutional convention. And, just like with the ERA, something that seemed an easy win came to a complete standstill once Phyllis threw her hat in the ring. The big difference, however, was that now she was battling her own right flank. Fiscal conservatives were furious that Phyllis had stymied the chance to pass a balanced budget amendment, and the Reagan administration's hard work getting the amendment before the states came to naught. There were other clashes between Schlafly and the administration, including the establishment of the Women's Policy Board, which was stuffed with pro-ERA activists. Furious, Schlafly launched yet another campaign of phone calls, letters, and telegrams to the White House, demanding that anti-abortion and anti-ERA women be appointed. Reagan called Schlafly personally to apologize, saying he wasn't aware of who was being appointed. He agreed to establish a family policy board, which had a good number of equal form activists serving on it. All of this was ultimately a fight between principle and pragmatism. It's a tale as old as time. Politician makes all the promises constituents want to hear on the campaign trail, then gets into office and immediately starts breaking them. But it was the job of activists like Phyllis Schlafly to keep them on their toes. And after the defeat of the ERA, Reagan had to walk a fine line between alienating the grassroots movement that got him elected and alienating the average American women who had the power to get him re-elected. And it was this ability to appease nearly everybody, to be pragmatic and principled, that made him one of the most popular presidents in American history. For her part, Phyllis maintained excellent relations with the Reagan administration despite their push-and-pull struggle. She was invited to the White House often, 
and Reagan spoke via video at the Eagle Forum Leadership Conference for years, praising their volunteer activities. Another battle that kept Schlafly as busy as ever was her outspoken criticism of the so-called activist judges who threatened to undermine family values and traditional morality. She picked out Ruth Bader Ginsburg early on, well before she was appointed to the Supreme Court, as being just the kind of dangerous judge who was legislating from the bench in a bid to undermine the Constitution. She cited a 1977 study co-authored by Ginsburg titled Sex Bias in the U.S. Code, a report of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, as a prime example of the danger in allowing the courts to overreach. Schlafly feared that judges like Ginsburg would accomplish what the doomed ERA had failed to, to make the law gender-neutral, to legalize immoral practices like prostitution and distribution of pornography, to integrate all American institutions such as the Boy and Girl Scouts, and legalize homosexuality in all ways, from marriage to adoption rights. The 1984 RNC gave Phyllis another avenue for pulling her party further to the right and making family values increasingly central to Republican policy. That year, she did manage to secure a seat on the platform committee, and her handiwork is all over it. Working with Illinois Representative Henry Hyde, of the famous Hyde Amendment, which bars the use of federal funds in abortions, Phyllis did something very clever. With Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court had called on the 14th Amendment's right to privacy as precedent for giving women the right to seek an abortion. Schlafly and Hyde called on the same amendment to eliminate abortion. The new abortion plank read, The unborn child has a fundamental individual right to life which cannot be infringed. We therefore reaffirm our support for a human life amendment to the Constitution, and we endorse legislation to make clear that the 14th Amendment's protections apply to unborn children. The unusually high number of evangelical Christians who attended the 1984 convention were thrilled. Other emphatic family values language made it into that year's platform. It denounced Washington's governing elite, who sought to build a brave new world by assaulting our basic values. They attacked the integrity of the family and parental rights. They ignored traditional morality. And they still do. There was huge emphasis on the right to have traditional values in schools, and the platform attributed physical and sexual abuse of women and children to gratuitous sex and violence in the entertainment media, as well as the porn industry. It also called on the Department of Education to enforce the Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment, which prohibited requiring any pupil to reveal personal or family information as part of any federally supported program, test, treatment, unless the school obtains written consent of the pupil's parents. The Equal Forum had been putting pressure on the Reagan administration to enforce the PPRA, which would give parents say over their children's exposure to objectionable material, such as sex and drug education courses. It would also require parental consent for children to participate in surveys or evaluations regarding any personal family issues like politics, religion, income, medical issues, or behavior. Demands from Schlafly and her eagles and other conservative voices eventually led to the Department of Education holding hearings across the country in 1984. Hundreds of parents, teachers, and activists showed up to testify about what they deemed violations of parents' rights by counseling and guidance programs, sex ed classes, various social studies courses, 
and inappropriate questions about students' family life and individual behavior. When the Department of Education refused to publish the hearings, a supporter who worked in the DOE leaked a copy of the transcripts to Schlafly. That year, she published Child Abuse in the Classroom, a whopping 434-page book consisting of selections from the 1,300 pages of testimony. Reagan himself endorsed the book, and it quickly sold a quarter of a million copies. Shortly thereafter, the DOE issued new regulations restricting psychological tests and treatments without parental consent, and the Eagle Forum did a victory lap, reminding parents to stay vigilant and involved at the local and state level of public schooling. All the while, the Eagle Forum continued to grow. In 1981, Phyllis opened an office in Washington, D.C. and established the Eagle Forum Education and Legal Defense Fund, a nonprofit wing of the Eagle Forum. In 1993, she purchased a building in an upscale suburb of St. Louis to house the national offices of the Education and Legal Defense Fund. By 2003, the Eagle Forum and its nonprofit branch had combined revenues of $2.4 million and net assets of $15 million. She had also established the Eagle Forum PAC to fund pro-family values political campaigns. The Eagle Forum and all of its tendrils run through the right wing of the Republican Party and serve as a winch to pull the party toward ever-increasingly conservative values. And the proof is in the pudding. Today, the GOP is far more conservative than it was even in the age of Reagan, and it's a trend that shows no sign of slowing. Reagan left office one of the most popular presidents in American history. He was well-liked across the political spectrum, but he's practically a saint for the Republican right. He is the standard to which every serving Republican is held, even to this day. Poor George H.W. Bush couldn't hold a candle to Reagan, and he never enjoyed the full support of the right flank of his party. During his campaign, it seemed that Bush was pushing for federal daycare, and he was supporting an anti-abortion amendment that changed the exception of life of the mother to illness of the mother, which dampened conservative support for him quite a bit. Still, Schlafly played an important role in getting Bush elected. This was the election in which the infamous Willie Horton case took center stage. William Horton was a prisoner serving a life sentence for stabbing a gas station attendant to death during a robbery. At the time, Massachusetts had a furlough program that granted incarcerated people weekend passes. On one of Horton's furloughs, he was accused of assaulting a couple, beating and stabbing the young man and raping the woman. He was again arrested, and the presiding judge sent him to a Maryland prison instead, lest he be let out on furlough again. Michael Dukakis, who had beaten Al Gore in the Democratic primary, was then the governor of Massachusetts and had supported the furlough program as a method of rehabilitation. It was originally Gore who had used the Horton case as a campaign attack. Democrats were now getting in on the law and order discourse, too. But come the general, Republicans wielded it like a cudgel, to great effect. Phyllis Schlafly read about the case in Reader's Digest and had an idea. She commissioned a 28-minute video based on the article. Titled Justice on Furlough, it didn't mention any political candidates and was presented as a straightforward documentary about the case. It featured interviews with the couple who had allegedly been assaulted by Horton, as well as other victims of crimes who opposed the furlough program. It cost $44,000 to produce and sold on VHS for 1995, 
and was distributed widely among Republicans thanks to support from Congressman Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist. The RNC placed a large order and urged supporters to show the video at every rally, fundraiser, and college Republican meeting. In October of 1988, an ad titled Weekend Passes was released. The Bush campaign claimed that it wasn't responsible for the ad, but in any event it was incredibly damaging to Dukakis. The ad was pulled quickly, but was replaced with the Bush campaign's ad Revolving Door, and charges of racism started flying. Republicans, of course, denied the accusations, and in the end, Bush beat Dukakis handily. And once again, the new president disappointed conservatives by backing away from social issues and famously reneging on his promise to not increase taxes. With Reagan in the party's rearview mirror, it was time to find a new beacon of leadership for conservative Republicans. But poor Phyllis would spend nearly three decades looking for the right person to fill the shoes of Goldwater and the Gipper. She never properly endorsed H.W. Bush, his son George W. Bush, or John McCain in their runs for the presidency. She did endorse Mitt Romney in 2012, but she wasn't thrilled about it. It was mostly in reaction to Obama, whom, as we will see, she hated with the ferocity of a thousand sons. But then, someone new escalated down to the podium. A nationalist, a trade protectionist, someone tough on immigration and isolationist in his foreign policy. He was a populist, an outsider, a plain-spoken, tough talker, just like her. Sure, he had faults. Who didn't? But in Donald Trump, Phyllis saw the future of not just the Republican Party, but of the nation. Here was a candidate with the gumption to stand up to the political establishment. A choice, not an echo. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time. <laughs>